0: When you're standing on the stage and the subwoofers are under your feet, that last part's like It's like a nice feeling at this service. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you guys. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in our second week of our series in the book of Ephesians. This is going to be 10 weeks total, just going verse by verse through this absolutely incredible book. Isaac kicked us off last week by looking at the opening 14 verses. He also gave a ton of contextual information about the city of Ephesus in the first century, the culture there. It's really important stuff for really kind of engaging with and understanding the rest of the book. So if you missed it, please go back and listen on the podcast or watch the video online, and we would love to have you guys totally on the same page about kind of what's going on in that city at that time. But today, we're going to look at the second half and jump into Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus, and his prayer is really rooted in everything that he talked about last week. He starts it off by saying, because of all this, and he means everything I just said, And what we looked at last week was how Paul starts the letter off by talking about how God's plan came to its ultimate fruition in Jesus uniting all things, which is why we've called this series To Unite All Things. And it's why all the imagery involves these circles that are overlapping. It's because Paul's message in this book is that the world, the heavens, the earth was created in unity, reconciled to God, good, order, and was broken apart by sin and rebellion. And in Christ, God is bringing them back together, uniting all things together, things in heaven, Paul says, and things on earth. And so one of the things that we're gonna see throughout this book is that everything from the most cosmic, most zoomed out, most like macro view level, all the way down to the everyday things like parenting, like marriage, and the stuff you and I do every day of our lives, all of it is part of God's plan to unite all things in Jesus. And as we'll see today in particular, it's things in heaven and things on earth, things in the spiritual realm and things in our everyday lives. Those things are more connected than most of us realize. One of the themes that gets introduced in the prayer that we're going to look at today is the theme of power. And power is something that whether you know it or not, human beings are obsessed with. I want to say at this point that I showed Heroic restraint in not making a PG&E joke during the section of the sermon so Just so you guys know that was the most impressive thing about this sermon is not making the joke RJ Campos just told me 30 seconds ago. Hey make the PG&E joke, and I'm still not going to (laughs) Just so you know But really uh, we human beings are obsessed with power And, and depending on your personality You might immediately go like I am not some people are obsessed with power, but I'm not obsessed with power I'm like more of a background type person, I don't need to be in control. But if you define power correctly, you realize all of us are obsessed with it and are trying to get it all the time. Power just means having the resources and ability to do what you want. It means having kind of control of your own destiny. And so depending on what you want, your quest for power could look really like Darth Vader-y and dramatic, Or it could look really ordinary. It's just the desire to get what you want to control the relationships in your life, to control your family, to control your kind of lifestyle and social situation. Sometimes it's the power to not be noticed. So it doesn't always look like somebody who's power hungry in the traditional sense, but all of us are constantly doing a huge variety of ordinary looking things to try to get power for ourselves. For us in our world, this stuff just looks like everyday life. It's kind of what we're spending all of our time doing. But if you travel outside of our culture and kind of look at how this is done in other parts of the world, it looks really dramatic and really obvious. I'll show you an example. I'm the mission pastor here at South Valley, so I've been fortunate and blessed to get to travel to a ton of different countries where our partners are located. This is a picture that my wife took in Cambodia back in 2012. It is a massive temple. They call them watts there. It's, it's this massive wat in the middle of a temple complex. It's hard to tell from the picture how big it is, but if you look just to the right, you see some small temples. You guys get an idea from that, like how huge this temple is? Massive, massive temple in the middle of the biggest temple complex in Phnom Penh. And um, we heard from locals that the president of Cambodia at the time was known to come to this temple to attend seances held by someone who the locals called the King Monk. So you have to picture the most kind of materially powerful person in that country, even he is attending seances in a temple to try to access spiritual power. For most of the world, for most of human history, getting power usually meant trying to access spiritual power in some kind of direct way to your advantage. And that's still true for the majority of the world today. And until very recently, that's how the entire world did things. And one of the things I'd suggest to you to kind of keep in your mind as we go is that that our kind of search for power is not any less spiritual than things like this. It's just the water we swim in, so we're used to it. And it doesn't feel spiritual to us. But you don't have to be the president of Cambodia to to kind of try to access power in this way in the developing world. Um, All around the city, anybody who could afford one in their front yard had what's called a spirit house, which is a way of trying to lure evil spirits out into your front yard so they wouldn't be in your house. People all over the world wear the red cord of protection around their wrist or around their waist. We've, We've talked about that here before. But all of that is a search to try to get power that you can use to your advantage. If you're in first century Ephesus, this would just be how life was. I mean, the entire Greco-Roman world at this time is like this, but it doesn't get a whole lot more power-hungry and spiritually focused than Ephesus. Isaac talked about that a lot last week, but a couple things to keep in mind for today. This is an image of, of Artemis, who is kind of the primary goddess of in Ephesus. She's not the only god who was worshipped there. There was dozens, as many as 50 gods worshipped in Ephesus, including the imperial cult, where you would worship the Caesar of Rome. And in addition to the kind of like temple stuff and more formal religious stuff, there was also a hugely popular practice of magic, especially in the kind of lower socioeconomic classes. In Ephesus, So there were magical papyri that we have actually uncovered in archaeology that show the kind of things that people would do using magical spells and magical names to try to get themselves an advantage, whether it's romantically or militarily or you name it. Now, Artemis, though, was not just famous and popular, but, but thought to be incredibly powerful. She was thought to have this cosmic power and, and kind of be at the top of the line as far as gods in the ancient world go. You can actually see in this statue, carved into her skirts, the images of all these different types of animals. And most scholars think that those animals are meant to represent the lesser spiritual beings that Artemis had power over. Because the magical papyri will name spiritual beings using names like bull and horse and donkey and things like that, dog, wolf. And so all of these kind of animals represent the fact that Artemis, there's all these spiritual beings and you, you have all these ways of trying to get power from them. But Artemis sits above all of them. So if you're in Ephesus, you see her giant temple, biggest building that the ancient world had, talking the size of a football field, four times bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. She just overshadows everything in your life, and she kind of sits at the top of the power structure in the spiritual world. Paul knows this. And the prayer that he prays in the second half of Ephesians chapter 1 is like a direct attack on this worldview that subverts and flips all of it. And if you and I can come to see the way that the spiritual world interacts with our world, which is a very difficult leap for modern people to make, you'll see how this prayer, man, it can absolutely impact everything we do and the way we view our world. He starts like this. He says, for this reason, meaning everything he just said, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul had spent years in Ephesus. So when he talks about hearing a report about the Ephesian Christians, these are his friends. It's not just like, you know, he's getting reports from all over the world and here's how the church in Ephesus is doing. He knows these people. And so he says, I heard a report that that they're doing incredibly well. Specifically, he says, I heard about your faith which in the biblical language does not just mean something you believe in your head, but, but your loyalty, your allegiance to God, and how that faith has spilled out in love for your fellow Christians. You notice that's two-thirds of the faith, hope, love triad that you see all over the New Testament, and hope is coming next. But he starts by saying, I'm just so thankful to hear about how well you're doing, and because of that, I don't stop mentioning you in my prayers. All throughout my prayer times, you guys are, are always a part of it. And then he writes out, what he prays for them. And this is a moment where our kind of understanding of what prayer is for and the kind of things we should pray for can can absolutely get expanded in a beautiful way. We're used to thinking of prayer as kind of like a divine crisis management tool. So you wait till there's a crisis, either in your life or in someone else's life, and then that's what you pray for. And so it's kind of like, you know, so-and-so is going through this incredibly hard thing, so we really need to pray for them. And there's no question that that's part of what prayer is about, that we should be praying for those kinds of things. But note that Paul, even though he probably does know specific details about what's going on in the lives of the Christians in Ephesus, he doesn't pray for any of their circumstances specifically. He has this kind of zoomed out view that allows him to pray in such a way that that it will affect every circumstance that all of them are a part of. This is a passage that, honestly, to, just to tell you guys, when, when I studied this a few years ago in seminary, it changed the way I pray for all of you because I had never thought to pray like this and about the kind of implications of what this type of prayer actually means in the life of a Christian. This is what he says his prayers are. He says he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's kind of a conceptual knot that we'll untie here. But note, nothing about specific circumstances. He doesn't say, I've heard about this, this, and this going on in Ephesus, and I'm praying for that. He says, I'm praying that you would know some things. Look at all the knowledge words. He talks about, he wants them to have wisdom, revelation, knowledge, and have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they would know. All of those words are about new or deeper knowledge of some things. It's because Paul knows if they can know these things at a deeper level, it will impact every circumstance they their end. And he's specifically concerned with them knowing three things, hope, his inheritance, and his power. We're going to look at each of them in turn. We're going to go kind of quick through the first two and, and park on the last one, because it's really where the kind of power of, no pun intended, where the power of the passage is. The first thing he says he wants them to know is hope. And hope, all through the New Testament, is just kind of the assumed posture of the Christian. The idea is that Christians, compared to everyone else in the world, have knowledge of something that happened in the past that has eternal implications for their future, that allows them to live in the present moment different than everyone else. You know something that happened in the past. To us, 2,000 years in the past. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And because of what you know about the implications of that for your future, you can face the present circumstances differently than everyone else can. So your life could be experiencing extreme hardship. You could be going through really difficult stuff. It could be your fault. It could be other people's fault. You could even be looking at the broader world around you and just thinking that it's all just going to hell in a handbasket and getting worse and worse. But because of the hope that you have for your future, because of Jesus' work in the past, you can face that with courage and strength and steadfastness. So you can already see, just in this first one, why Paul is so concerned with them knowing something. So he goes, "You have to know this hope if you want to live like that. You have to have a deeper knowledge of what's coming of what kind of hopeful expectation you have to be able to face the present." Then he says that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And if you read that, your kind of natural intuition or, or inclination, rather is to think... If he says inheritance, he wants us to know about an inheritance. He means an inheritance that we're going to get. That's just what it sounds like. It's like, he's probably talking about eternal life or heaven or something like that. He wants them to know the inheritance that they're going to get. That's not what he says. He doesn't say the riches of your inheritance. He says the riches of his glorious inheritance. When Paul talks about God's inheritance, he's hyperlinking back to countless Old Testament passages that talk about what God's inheritance is. Here's just two examples from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy takes place after the rescue of Israel from Egypt, after the wilderness wanderings, when they're about to enter the promised land, and Moses is kind of giving them a final charge before they go in. He says this, "...but the Lord has taken you, Israel, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day." For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This is a few chapters later. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And he goes on and on to basically say, it's nothing good about you that made you the ones I picked. I picked you for my glory because of what I'm gonna work through you. And I could show you truly dozens more verses just like this from all over the Old Testament that show that when God talks about God's inheritance, what he means is his people. In the Old Testament, that's Israel. So you see verses like this that make it crystal clear that that's what he means. But for the New Testament authors, what Jesus has accomplished has opened the family of God to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, Jew or Gentile. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The victory of Jesus allows the entry into the family of God of anyone. So Paul can write a letter to a place like Ephesus and say, you Christians, Ephesian Christians, you are a part of God's glorious inheritance. Think about this flip. He doesn't want them to know specifically about what God's gonna give them. He wants them to know about their position in the family of God. He says, the thing you need to grow in your knowledge of is who you are in God. That you, in spite of your circumstances, are a member of God's family. You're part of his chosen inheritance. Has it occurred to you before that God loves and cares for human beings so much that the inheritance he chooses is people, a people made up of, of folks like you and me from all over the world who don't deserve to belong in that family? There's also kind of interesting indications in the Old Testament, this is a little bit more debatable, that the other nations, besides Israel at that point in history, were under the control of other powerful spiritual beings. And if you were in Ephesus in the first century, looking at the image of Artemis, looking at the temple of Artemis, you'd probably have a pretty strong opinion about that, knowing that this being has been worshipped in this place for generations, for thousands of years. Paul says, I want you to know your place In God's glorious inheritance. It's more important for you to know who you are in the family of God than to know what God's going to give you someday. It's beautiful. And then he he kind of ties it all together with this third thing. He wants them to know his God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And that already looks like a a super power-oriented sentence in English, but in Greek, it's just so dramatic. You have the word power at the beginning, but in Greek, those last three words, working, great, and might, are all like borderline synonyms for power. So they have some different nuances, but you could almost translate it like, his power toward us who believe according to the power of his powery power. That's how it sounds in Greek. It's like like if if you were the original audience reading this or hearing this read in Greek, it would just be power, 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 power. That's how that sentence sounds. All the focus is on the power of God toward believers. And then he goes on to say exactly what that power is. He says, it's the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's hard to imagine a more comprehensive statement than that first half. He talks about him being seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places above everything. But again, if you read about Jesus being placed at the right hand of God in heavenly places with everything else under his feet, that would immediately be a hyperlink back to one of the most famous Psalms of Israel, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is actually the most quoted Old Testament passage by the New Testament, meaning New Testament authors quote this more than any other Old Testament passage over and over again. It's in the Apostles' sermons, and it's in a ton of the letters. And here, he's not directly quoting it but he's very clearly evoking it. It goes like this. These are two different words. Lord in all capitals is the personal name of Israel's God Yahweh and the second word is a more general name for for a master. So it says, "Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. It's a symbol of power. Rule in the midst of your enemies." the picture is of Jesus having completed his work, being resurrected, raised to the right hand of God, a place of equality with God where he rules over his enemies. And so if that's the verse that you would think of when you hear that, the natural question is to go, well, who, who are his enemies? Are we talking about like the persecutors of the church, the human beings that the Ephesian Christians are having to deal with all the time? I mean, we know from Paul's own ministry in Ephesus when he was there, that he had to deal with a silversmith named Demetrius, who when the kind of like silver idol making industry was being threatened by the number of new Christians, starts a riot and almost gets a few of the Christians killed. And the only way they calm it down is by the town clerk saying, you don't have to worry about Christians. No one is ever gonna dethrone Artemis, okay? which is awesome, because 2,000 years later, how many worshipers of Artemis are there in the world? That's a total side note. You could read that and go, who are Jesus' enemies? Is Is it human beings who are persecuting the church? But Paul makes it crystal clear that that's not what he's talking about. He says, what Jesus is above is all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named for all time. All of these words are just transparently words that are used to describe spiritual powers, both in the ancient world and the magical papyri that we found from Ephesus and also all over the rest of the New Testament. In particular, when he says every name that is named, that's like a direct shot at Ephesian spirituality. Because in Ephesian magic, the naming of names was a powerful part of how you kind of could acquire different blessings and powers for yourself. So there was actually six specific names that we've uncovered in archeology span called the um, Ephesian grammatica. And there's six words that represent the names of different spiritual beings. They're very mysterious and if you could get access to them and learn to speak them in the right way in time or wear them on your neck as an amulet or have them in your house engraved on different household objects, naming those names in particular ways granted you spiritual power or protection or advantage or romance, or whatever it was you were looking for. In addition to that, if you're in ancient Rome, you could invoke the name of Caesar, the Caesar of Rome, for spiritual power. So for Paul to say, Jesus is seated above every name that is named, is a much less abstract idea to the original readers of this letter than it is to you and me. Much less abstract. He's talking about everyday life stuff. The names that you named before you were a Christian are powerless compared to Jesus. They're beneath him. Now think of the imagery of Jesus seated above every power in a place where statues of Artemis have the spiritual beings that she's supposed to be in power over carved into her skirts. He goes above everything, everything. This is where we, as modern Western people, have to do a little bit more work to connect to this idea. Because like I said earlier, we, we don't intuitively think of the world this way. We don't think of power this way. We have kind of a specific idea of what power looks like, and we're comfortable with that. We don't think about spiritual powers. If you were raised in this culture, whether you like it or not, you have inherited a specific cosmology that pictures heaven way up here, totally disconnected from earth with a massive gap, and then you've got earth, where everything, for the most part, just kind of hums along on its own materialistic path, just like a well-worn machine doing its job. And then, you know, down here, there's some kind of vague idea of where the bad stuff's at, but we don't even really quite get what that is. And so life, for the most part, is just, you know, a clock running like a clock. But every once in a while, if you're a Christian, you believe every once in a while, God might reach way down from heaven and do something like a miracle, something crazy, the kind of thing that never happens. Or on the other side, every once in a while, the evil powers might reach up through this massive gulf that separates us and do something evil. But for the most part, they don't belong together, they're totally separate. That's if you believe they exist at all. But in the biblical worldview, it could not be more different. It's a huge part of why we've used this imagery of these overlapping circles. Because when the Bible talks about the heavens, Isaac talked about this last week, it's not this faraway place that God has to reach way down from to do something. It's something that overlaps and intersects and interacts with our world in ways that we don't always understand, but it's normal. The spiritual world having an impact on the material world, that's just how it works. And that's the entire Bible. That's the way they picture it. But man, I'm telling you, and I know because this is me too, that's just not how we think of it. It takes work to get there. So understand, I, I get that this is like a foreign, weird way to think about it, but it is the way the Bible describes it. And I think that if we're honest, and we either look at you know, our own lives, or we look at kind of movements throughout history, we can see that there's, there's something just beyond what we're doing, and like the decisions we make. Some things seem to be pushed beyond even what human will might be in opposition to God. And Paul, by the way, and all the New Testament authors have a ton of nuance with this stuff. They're not going like, Paul's not saying like, every time you do anything bad, it's because a spiritual being made you do that. Paul's also really quick to be like, no, your heart is evil. You're a broken person with your motives mixed up and you're in rebellion against God. So you do all kinds of stuff that you shouldn't do but he doesn't separate that from what's going on in the spiritual world. If you asked Paul, hey, when I act in rebellion against God, is that me or is that the spiritual powers that are at work in the world? I think Paul would go, yes, you got it. We have some really horrific, dramatic examples throughout history. I mean, we could pick from countless different things. Anybody know what this is? You probably don't. This is just a picture that my wife took when we were in Cambodia. We'll go back there mentally for a minute here. I picked this image because it looks like a perfect metaphor for what I'm talking about. On the surface, what you see is just like a nice looking little green field with trees, maybe some kind of weird unnatural divots in the grass. But what's actually there is every one of those indentations represents a mass grave that was uncovered from the Cambodian genocide. So this is one tiny section of one of the many killing fields all over Cambodia. Some of you will be familiar with this. There was a movie made about it. It's excellent, difficult-to-watch movie. Um, many of you won't be familiar with it at all because it's rare to even learn about this event in school, even though it just happened. This is how much I'm talking about just happened, by the way. That's the walking path throughout this area. It's a visitor center, like you pay a fee to go visit this. And that's just the path you walk on. And what you're seeing there are scraps of clothing that are still working their way up to the surface of the dirt from the people who were buried there. And every few years they kind of go through and collect everything and put them in these cases that you can see, but it's just, it's just right there. The killing didn't stop till 1979. This just happened. I have way, way more pictures from this place that I decided not to show um, after thinking about it for a long time because they're they're so disturbing and upsetting and I know we have a broad range of ages and people with different sensitivities in the room so I, I chose not to but just know this. This is the kind of thing that human beings do to each other and we have like a super bad guy in this story sort of like how we have Hitler with Nazi Germany. There's a guy named Pol Pot who was sort of at the top of this regime and he was evil, wicked man and it's really easy to be like Pol Pot, killed two million Cambodians. But one person doesn't kill two million of his countrymen. It's just not how it works. Two million people, by the way, 25% of the population of the country at that time. A quarter of the people killed by their own countrymen. So you've got Pol Pot, who's like an avowed atheist. It's actually like built into his worldview. He's persecuting people of all kinds of religious faiths, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, anything he can find. But he really wanted to return Cambodia to like an idealized agrarian farming type of place. So that meant like, you know, if you have an advanced degree or what we would consider a white collar job, if that gets found out, you're dead. That's how so many people died. He moved everybody into kind of farming labor camps and people died of starvation and were beaten and and executed. And by the end of that, from 1975 to 1979, 25% of the people in the country died. So you have at the top of that this guy who's an atheist, but his soldiers at the ground level are covered in the Cambodian tattoos with the names of spiritual beings meant to protect them from the bullets of their enemies. And by the way, the people fighting on the other side of the war had the same thing. Is this evil human beings rebelling against God? Or is it spiritual powers in the heavens in opposition to God, pushing humanity in that direction? I think Paul would say, yes. So let's go like closer to home. Something that everyone in the room can connect to. Think about the entertainment choices that all of us make. The things we choose to watch. Because Americans are known for watching a ton of TV and movies, right? And let me just take a kind of informal poll in the room. Would you say that the majority of the media that we consume are things that move humanity towards God's ideal for human beings or that push us away from that? Away, right? There's the occasional bright spot, but I mean, come on, you guys aren't watching TBS 20 hours a week. Sorry, PBS. TBS, We Know Funny. Is that We Know Funny? Are they We Know Funny? At one point, I had all those taglines memorized. That's how much TV I watched. I don't have it anymore. Instead, I watch Netflix all the time now. So you guys are gonna go like, are you, are you seriously trying to tell me that like demons are making me watch too much TV? Like you, like a horror movie, you've got like your remote and you're like, wait, what? Wait, Game of Thrones is on, I don't even wanna watch this. No, no, it's, that's not what I'm talking about. But think about the effect on a culture of consuming countless hours of things that are in direct opposition for what God wants from human beings and the direction that God wants to move humanity. Again, Just human rebellion and desire for evil things? Yeah. But maybe is there more than that? Are there things in us that are driving us, working in collaboration with our rebellious spirits, to be in opposition to God? Absolutely. We could talk about this with our spending habits. We could talk about this with the kind of general lifestyle choices we make around things like food and health even. How about this one, though? Here's like an incredibly dramatic example. Something happened in the late 50s, early 60s called the sexual revolution that was all about cast off all of the kind of shackles of what religious people have said about sexuality and express your sexuality in your way. And just in case that wasn't obvious enough, we still to this day call it empowerment. It's about taking control of your destiny when it, as it relates to sexual behavior. So it's like, Do whatever you want, whenever you want, with as many people as you want, and don't let anyone tell you not to do that. Now, if human beings were just machines trying to do what's best for us, we would probably stop doing that at the point when 25% of American adults got an incurable STD, 2015. When we realize we're spending $16 billion a year on healthcare just related to sexually transmitted diseases. Like that's that's just like the trackable stuff How do we even comprehend what this does to abortion rates and the numbers of children who are in foster care and the emotional damage and fallout that it has on families and pornography addiction and the countless other ways that this empowerment has made us worse and is killing us, literally and figuratively. So I'm not trying to make anybody feel ashamed or judged. That's not my point. My point is there's something in us It's the same reason why you can get hundreds of thousands of Cambodians to kill their neighbor. Same things have happened in every culture on the planet. It's the same reason why we don't just allow behavior that's killing us, but we champion and celebrate it and call it a way to get power. We use that language. How do you empower yourself, young people? Do something that will kill you and hurt your friends and family. It takes work to change your frame of mind to see that perhaps behind the scenes there's more going on than meets the eye. And again, it's not you being forced to do something you don't want to. We're also broken and rebellious by nature and without Jesus and the Holy Spirit working in our lives, that's the direction we want to go. But there's a collaboration between spiritual forces that have been in opposition to God from the beginning. So what Paul says... It's intuitive to the Ephesians, it's not intuitive to us, but if you think about that world, think of how powerful this is, that Jesus, after his resurrection, after accomplishing his mission, he is raised and exalted to the right hand of God, above every rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, for all eternity into the future, Everything is under his feet. How could you try to get power the old way ever again if that's true? How could you go to magical papyri to try to get power when Jesus is seated above Artemis and every other spiritual power that has ever been named now and on into eternity? It's beautiful. And he finishes it by saying that he's head over all things but has this unique head-body relationship to the church. And this is kind of the flip side of the coin of our inability to see the spiritual reality behind the material world. Our our predisposition to ignore evil spiritual forces is one thing, but it also blinds us to the good, beautiful power that is at work in the church spiritually, which, by the way, is literally what Paul's praying for, that we would know that, and we don't because of our kind of materialist predisposition. So I want to read an excerpt from a book called The Screwtape Letters. How many of you have read The Screwtape Letters at some point? Every one of you should read that book at some point. It's one of C.S. Lewis's oldest works of fiction, and it's a series of imaginative letters written from the perspective of a senior tempter, is what he's called, but he's a a demon, an evil spiritual being, who is writing letters to his nephew, who's kind of like a new rookie tempter, and giving him advice on how to tempt human beings away from Jesus. So this is all in C.S. Lewis's imagination, but it's his way of talking about what kind of strategies might those forces in opposition to God's will use to trick us and tempt us. And it's amazing. It has stood the test of time for close to 100 years. It's incredible. I really recommend it. Sometimes it's hilarious. Sometimes it's terrifying. And it's, it will absolutely transform your view of your life. This section I'm going to read is a little bit long, um, but it's worth reading, and it's about how um, Wormwood, or Screwtape, who is kind of the older demon, he's telling his nephew Wormwood, here is how you get your patient, which is what they call the humans they're tempting, here's how you get your patient to view the church. He says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. How cool is that, by the way? But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham-gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Listen to this. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Incredibly insightful. He goes... And and this is the theme of the book over and over, is it's not big dramatic like exorcisms and demon possessions that work. It's getting us to miss what's happening in the everyday right in front of you. And he goes, no, the church universal is terrifying. That's the next stage in God's plan to unite all things. But humans can't see that. So instead, get them to look at their fellow Christians and think this isn't the body of Christ without even thinking that. And if you're already of a materialist predisposition, then man, you come to church and you're like, at the very best, it's like, here I am at a weekly gathering of a local nonprofit organization. And what Screwtape knows is if these Christians could see what God is doing in the church, that it would change everything. And that's exactly what Paul's praying for in this section, that you would see that you would know that you would have a deeper revelation of the power that is at work among the saints, what God is doing in and through the church, his body. You're not just attending a weekly meeting of a nonprofit organization. This is the next stage in God's plan to reconcile all things. You are blood-bought sons and daughters of God. You're the temple on earth. You're carriers of the Holy Spirit. You are how the power of resurrection, which is what Paul calls it, goes forth into the world until he comes back. And C.S. Lewis imagines that the best thing a demon could possibly do is get you to focus instead on all of the annoying things about your fellow Christians, because there are plenty. So, what kind of power is it that Paul wants you to know? Like I said at the beginning, we're all kind of searching to acquire power, to align ourselves with powerful people of our definition of what that means. But Paul says the power that's at work in the church is resurrection power. It's the power of God to take dead things and bring them to life from the literal to the figurative and everything in between. It's not the power to crush your enemies, because who's the ultimate example? Jesus. What is the greatest manifestation of God's power in human history? It is the king of heaven and earth dying for his enemies instead of crushing them. It's a king who washes his disciples' feet. It's about sacrificial love. And Paul knows that, man, if you know the hope if you know that you're a part of this inheritance, you're part of the family of God, and if you could know the power of the resurrection that's at work in and through the body of Christ on earth, it would change everything. And I think the reason he prays for it, and he calls it wisdom from the spirit, wisdom of the spirit, is because he knows you can't like learn your way into seeing it that way. I know I can't. This is difficult for me to see it this way. I'm as kind of like, like shaped by materialism as anyone else in the room. And so Paul says, no, I'm praying for this, for God to reveal it to you so that you could see the power that's at work here. And so we're gonna close right now and, and I'm gonna invite our prayer counselors like Stan talked about to, to come to the front. So if you need prayer after service, come forward. But, but here's how I wanna close. The only, in my opinion, appropriate way to apply this text is to do it is to pray this. And so I just took Paul's prayer and changed the pronouns to be about us, language directed to God. And I just want to pray it for all of us in the room. And um, I invite you to, um, you know, internally, silently join with me and ask God to give us this knowledge, this revelation. Because it's funny, it's, like, it's funny to spend 40 minutes coming up here and going like, let me try to like tell you the thing that Paul just said only the Spirit of God can reveal to you. You know what I mean? So probably the most important part of this sermon is the next 30 seconds when we actually pray this together. Because I, I believe Paul's right. I think if we could grasp the hope, if we could get the inheritance, if we could see the power of God at work in the church, it would change the way we live completely. And we could actually take our place as the next arm of God's plan to unite all things. Know that you, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, you, if you are in Christ, have been reconciled to God because of the work of Jesus and are now therefore sent to reconcile. You have been united with Christ to become a uniter of all things. So prayer counselors can come forward. I'm gonna pray this and then we're gonna head out into the world hopefully with a a growing knowledge of what God is doing in and through the church God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, may you give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that we may have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day.